Darmstadt on Air number 6 Grappling with the Canon Nicholas Hodges in conversation with Ilan Volkov Welcome to Darmstadt on Air, the podcast of the Darmstadt Summer Course with conversations on music and experiment. I'm Silvia Freidang from the Darmstadt Summer Course team and I'm happy to introduce episode number 6. Each podcast edition is hosted by a tutor or guest artist of the Darmstadt Summer Course. And this time, piano tutor Nicholas Hodges takes the mic. He was born in London and is now based in Germany, where he is a professor for piano at the Musikhochschule Stuttgart. For his podcast, he chose to talk to Ilan Volkov. Born in Israel, Ilan Volkov is a conductor who works with many ensembles worldwide and is principal guest conductor of the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra. He also works as a curator and invented the Tectonics Festival. In their Skype call at the end of July 2020, Nicholas Hodges and Ilan Volkov talked about programming, about working relations with composers, how a canon or several canons evolve and how to go against that. But first, we let them introduce themselves. Enjoy listening. Good day, listeners. This is Darmstadt on Air. I am Nicholas Hodges. I'm a pianist and I've been the docent for Klavier for Piano at Darmstadt since 2000. And I'm with Ilan Volkov. Hi, I'm Ilan Volkov, a conductor and curator of festivals as well. And yeah, musician. Conductor, curator, musician. Anything else? Uh, it's plenty for now, I think. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, Ilan, what, what, how do you choose what you play? What music you play? Wow, it's a big one. Um, I mean, a lot of it comes, of course, from the, the person that engages me. Uh, unlike a soloist uh, who does recital, let's say, um, a lot of what we do as conductors comes uh, to us, you know, by the promoter or the festival or the orchestra. Um, but if we look, I mean, if I talk about it as, as what I want to do, then it's kind of something that's been changing a lot in my mind in the last 20 years, 20, 20 plus years. Um, and now I'm in a place where um, I kind of know more what I want to do in a certain place with a certain orchestra um, what I can't do there, whether it be things to do with the rehearsal time or, or, or other practical issues. Um, and what I want to bring to the table maybe in a place where it's, for example, a new music festival or a new music ensemble or orchestra where I, I still want to add um, some other things that maybe they don't know of. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been kind of growing uh, in my mind a lot in the last 10 years, especially trying to kind of expand what I do and, and not just receive the, the list of composers and say yes. So is that when you said it's changed a lot in the last 20 years, 20 years ago, how can you characterize, how would you characterize the situation? Would it, would it be that you had a list? You had something presented to you as a fait accompli that, that you just had to do or not do? 
Is that the situation? Yeah, I mean, that, that still happens, but obviously less. And um, especially with new music, I have much more on my own agenda, uh, which, uh, which I think is quite clear, even to people. I mean, by now people know what my agenda is, more or less. So they might know what they are going to get. Um, and also they might be more curious. Uh, and I think I formed that over time. You know, and, uh, so in a way, what you're, what you're talking about is a two-way process, really, that, that they, the promoters uh, are presenting projects to you uh, because uh, in a different way because they know you better, as well as you responding in a different way to them and accepting different ones. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I yeah. think it's also to do with the fact that, you know, if, if let, let's say Ensemble and Contemporaine asks me for a program, which they have done for three, four times, um, they are open to composers maybe that they don't do with anyone else. So we right. have done already two projects, which, which I would say are quite unusual uh, for them. If you look at their canon and what they play usually, what we actually did in those two concerts is quite far to some degree from what they do. Can you name names? Yeah, sure. I mean, the last concert we did was um, a program where they, they, they wanted to do a Borowski piece or Johannes Borowski piece, which they already played before. So they wanted that piece, which I didn't know. And that was commissioned by them. But then I had the freedom with the rest of the program. So um, that ended up with the George Lewis piece for flute, George Lewis piece for ensemble, a Roscoe Mitchell piece, new piece for ensemble, and a piece uh, by Ty Sean Sorry for chamber ensemble. So uh, the three ensemble pieces that we ended up with uh, are very far from what uh, Ensemble Contemporary would do normally. Um, so that, that was a great experience. And, and we are doing actually a concert uh, in a couple of months. Hopefully, hopefully it happens. And um, in that concert, I brought into the table Carola Backholt, which they also never played. So I kind of know what the ensembles do, and I kind of keep, try to keep up, which is kind of tricky. And I, I do find it, it's important to bring in new voices to that locality because it, it does make like, like in Paris, of, yeah, there are other new music ensembles, but this ensemble is very significant in the whole of France. So if they don't play a piece by one composer for decades, um, that makes an impact, you know? And so if you change that suddenly, a lot of things can happen just by this act of opening the door. Um, yeah. And I, yeah. And I, how how do you think an ensemble like that gets its canon? Where does that come from? Did it? I mean, in in the ensemble like Tonton Brown's case, it obviously came in a could have come from Boulez, but do you think it's true that it comes only from Boulez, or does it come from the influence of French culture on the ensemble and the demands of French culture on the ensemble as well? Yeah. Where does it come from? I mean, I'm not an expert in in ensemble contemporain, but okay, let's maybe let's let's not talk about ensemble like Tonton Let's talk about yeah. an ensemble in a city in the world. When it chooses its music, be it Clang Forum, Sinfonietta, Ensemble Modern, sure. or any of the, the wonderful Scandinavian ensembles or in Spain or wherever. Um, uh, now I'm very Eurocentric, sorry. Um, uh, <laughs> um, uh, where, where the, the, it's not just the director, is it? It's going to be also the, the as I said, the, the, the culture that the, that the ensemble is, is nestled within. Yeah. Um, and it's perhaps the influence of funding bodies. What, where do you see 
the balance with things like that as influence? Well, I mean, it's, it's funny, this thing with ensembles, because the conductor is actually quite low in the ranking uh, with deciding repertoire, whether it be, that's, I, that might be a good thing, you know, I don't know. Um, so that's a funny one, because unlike orchestras where, you know, if you're a music director of an orchestra, of course, you're, you're responsible for your own repertoire, but possibly for the whole repertoire of the whole season, like you're supposed to kind of veto the whole, like you have a right of veto for the whole season. And so you might say conductor X doesn't touch that composer because that's not, I don't like how he does it. It does happen quite a bit. And with new music, our role as conductors is a bit kind of more on the edges and less clear. Um, And I would say that a lot of the ensembles are dealing with the locality, whether it be composers that are based there, you know, that you might not know of, that they might be really important in the city or country because of funding or because of their, them being a teacher or very influential, but you have no idea who that is. So sometimes it's a funny one when you get booked to do a piece, you know, especially if it's a kind of smaller um, country and you do a composer that's very known there, but not known anywhere else. Which yeah, so actually, I mean, yeah. Yeah. So for instance, so, so, so in a way, um, the canon, we talk about the canon I mean, one can talk about the canon as a thing which everyone agrees on, but obviously the canon is seen completely differently in Paris and Cape Town and and New Zealand. Yeah, funnily enough, it looks too similar, of course. It should look more different than it is actually looking right now. And I'm hoping that that actually ensembles will stop thinking that they have to to play a list of five to 10 composers and actually just like look much to a much broader scene. Um, I, I still think we are playing less music than we should be playing. Yeah, that's know? definitely true. That's definitely true. Um, but what I guess, I guess we're cutting, we're cutting the pie in different, in different directions because you're talking about the breadth. If we take, take another random city, um, uh, Buenos Aires, the ensembles in Buenos Aires, the, 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 way, the the breadth of Argentinian music they play is probably not sufficient, as well as the fact that they perhaps play a different national selection. So 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 Argentinian and maybe North American or other South American or or, or other European or or if there's a Japanese composer who's been living there the whole time, you know the way that the, the way that the choices are made, um, it cuts in lots of different directions, doesn't it? And 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 it yeah. can be broader in lots of directions, but. On the other hand, that means that then all the all the ensembles in the world will play the same repertoire if it gets infinitely broad. Um, I mean, no. there has to be some selection. There has to be some. Yeah, selection. Character. Yes, but the, the the problem the problem with selection is that a, a lot of people are just follow like they did forty years ago, fifty years ago. Mostly, they are following some centers, you know. And now, when they don't. That's why you have so much good music because there is actually more, there's less centers, there's less pockets of influence that are supposedly know about the selection of music. So for example, talking about Darmstadt, we, you know, Darmstadt was a kind of place where, oh, that guy was in Darmstadt and now he gets played in, even if, if you came back from Darmstadt, you could get like some gigs from that. But I mean, that's completely irrelevant now, obviously. And, and I think that's a good thing. I mean, 
I mean, if you talk about selection, I mean, let's be honest, before the selection was even tighter, you know, like you, you, in, in the early 90s, when I came to London, uh, I remember the Sinfonietta and other groups playing much less music, much less composer than they're playing now and much less breadth of styles, let's say, you know. So it was m- more segregated to some degree. But maybe I'm wrong, you know, it's just... Yeah, perception. I mean, I have a different kind of memory of, of the uh-huh. Sinfonietta programs from then. Like, I remember in the 80s, there was a Corbusier exhibition at the Haywood Gallery, which is a fantastic exhibition. And the Sinfonietta did basically the complete ensemble works of Zanarkis over the period of a few weeks in the QEH with Diego Masson conducting a lot of it. And and that's the only time I met him, actually. Um, and um, that was that was like Zanarkis for breakfast lunch and dinner <laughs> and and all brilliantly played and that's just not something they would bother to do anymore i think uh, right. because it's it's, I mean, that's folk, it's maybe... because it's not it's not breadth yeah yeah that's true i mean i guess maybe in the 80s there was i mean you could do pieces like you know early 90s you could do pieces like what ben mason did you know like huge expensive pieces you know and that kind of carried through um, in the 90s, maybe beginning of the 2000s. Now, nobody can afford that, you know? So, like, these huge these huge 80s types of projects, which are, like, really impressive, you know, nobody can do those kind of one single mind vision things. I mean, I think it's a good thing. I think it's, I mean, we did that, you know? Um, I think I agree that maybe we lack, you know, there, there is a disadvantage with doing lots of repertoire for sure. It can be like totally meaningless because you just throw tons of stuff around with no sense of programming. So there actually the programming is important, like how you, you, you present, you know, let's say Christian Wolf, how you present George Lewis, in what context you present these composers, which are outside maybe the normal, um, ensemble music like the normal ensemble yeah. music that yeah. we know you know it's like ligety you know tons of ligety again ligety maybe some bird whistle you know rim you know um you know few more composers you're done that was kind of like a norm and i think it's good that we are getting away from it but i think i agree that maybe if that's what you're saying that some composers need the dedication, you know, that we need to actually go deeper into their work. Yeah. Um, if you want I mean, I think, understand. you know, just to be stupidly utopian about it, we just need to do both, don't we? I mean, we need to, we need to be able to contextualize everyone and at the same time to say, right now I'm going to do this big bunch of stuff all by the same composer because of this, that, and the other piece or connection within the, the, the oeuvre or however you want to do it. Um, yeah. I mean, I was thinking what just flashed into my mind was just then was presenting was something else that we both have in different ways also experienced with is presenting older music with contemporary music that that if you do a whole recital of Beethoven sonatas, it's like I am doing my Beethoven sonatas recital, you know, and then you put in one piece of Stockhausen and <laughs> the effect on the whole thing is is explosive. Um, yeah. uh, and. I remember I did once a program with the Webern Variations, Stockhausen Klavierstück 10, and a late Beethoven Sonata and the Beethoven Fantasy over 7-7. And that was a wonderful program because it made it made Stockhausen sound so 
constructed and dramatic um, in and developmental in all the ways that Beethoven is. And it also made Beethoven sound incredibly fresh and and direct and wonderful. And that that was that's a that's an, another example of a way of mixing things up, which really is is necessary. I mean, I think Borowski and George Lewis and whoever else it was you said in that list. Rosco Mitchell, yeah. Rosco yeah. Mitchell. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's also an explosive combination. That's not just a combination of people who are, oh, that's an interesting piece and that's another interesting piece. I mean, I think in a way what you and I have done in different ways over different different periods of our of our life is is made programs which are not just variety. It's not just about variety, is it? Yeah. No, totally, I agree. And uh, I think the more you learn about music and you make these connections, which maybe are not so obvious, of course, at first. So, you know, that that takes time to actually listen to the music and learn it and, and suddenly think, oh, this should go with this. And I mean, I had my, you know, a lot of the programming that kind of led to Tectonics Festival, which I do, which I curate, um, came from doing here and now programs with a, BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra in Glasgow um, and some of our proms concerts as well. So over a decade of that work kind of led to this other project, which is kind of less, I mean, to some degree, it's still a here and now feel because it's still a catalog of pieces by different people. It's not like 55 minute piece by one composer. I mean, we don't really do that in, in tectonics usually, uh, in, at least in the orchestral music. But I, I mean, I still, I, I kind of did learn more and more about how to connect pieces. Um, yeah. And, and if you're talking about old music with new music, we did a lot of that in Glasgow and Iceland as well. And many other concerts that I still do. And that's a huge challenge. I mean, it started for me as a challenge because even to bring that one modern piece or even an old modern piece to the program was hard, yeah. you know, because you had, you had to convince people that don't want to be convinced. So sometimes it's a, it's a losing battle. And, you know, and to some degree, I'm happy that I don't have to fight this corner so much now. Uh, I, I'm fighting that corner much less now because I have all this other new music that I'm doing regularly anyway. So mm. if somebody asks me to do a Beethoven two, two, two symphonies in a concert, I say, thank you very much. Let's do. I'm, yeah. I'm kind of, being less idealistic about it than I than I have bef than I've been before because I anyway do the new music so yeah I mean I think I should just just jump in for a second and explain what here and now is that here and now is the BBC Radio 3's regular new music program weekly slot um uh and that is now was called something different it's now called something different uh yeah. I don't even know what it's called the now show or something um, uh, um, and Ilan was um, principal conductor of the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra, where he he um, did a lot of very interesting programs, and then was at the Iceland Symphony Orchestra as well. That's what it's called, isn't it? Right. Um, right. How was your experience in in America, in Boston, when you were there? That's a that's back to your childhood, basically. But yeah, well, I was assistant there in '98 to 2001. Um, so that was kind of more an observation role because I was assistant, so I didn't have any. Um, the best thing about that project in, in new music terms was um, was Tanglewoods because they had TMC there. So that's a new music festival that the students do, but the orchestra is also involved partly. 
Um, and that's a really fantastic thing where, you know, Oli Nassen used to conduct their Einberg Delau used to conduct their Stephen Asbury, uh, Stefan Asbury. And then tons of composers, of course, uh, were there all the time, George Benjamin, you, you name it. Um, so that was a great, mainly to observe, and I conducted a few little things, but, um, and that, that I think is a great model. I think the other great model that was great to observe as a kind of young conductor and young musician then was to see how Ozawa, Seiji Ozawa, the music director at the time, who was there already over 20, almost 25 years, um, how he kind of made, you know, he didn't do all new music. He had quite a narrow collection of composers he really loved, but he did do them over a long period again and again. So, of course, Takemitsu, um, Dutilleux, Lutoslavsky, you know, big names, uh, Messian. So all these composers were, came again and again. They wrote pieces for the orchestra. And, and the older audience that maybe was, had no idea at the beginning, by the, the, by the time Ozawa left, they really knew those composers because they mm. saw and heard like dozens of pieces by each of them. That's, I was about to say that's cutting the pie another, at another angle again, that what you do over time and how the programming yeah. works over time, both for yourself as a musician and for the audience. I mean, I don't have a patient as a musician to do that. So even if I will be conducted somewhere for five or 10, 20 years, I won't do that. It's just not me. But I really respect how they did that and how they, um, I think it really worked for that orchestra. You know, the yeah, fact but- that, there are some compo- there are some composers you come back to though. I mean, it's not like you drop everyone after one performance. No, of, co- of course not. Of course, yeah. and I have been lucky with developing a relationship of composers. You know, the other thing that, of course, you do a lot is you know, you 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 play one piece by one composer, and I guess then you they love it so much, then they 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 write more things for you, right? I mean, it happened. Well, it happened. Well, it it does have. I mean, I I do I do actually try to hold on hold on with with a with an iron grip to those composers who i who i really appreciate and who where the relationship works well um i mean i think it's it goes it's definitely goes in both ways they they i mean they wouldn't bother if they didn't want to write carry on writing for me um but i think for me i then i get that time element that you know like for example james clark who wrote me a new piece which i'm going to premiere in don arishingen in in october and I think the first piece he wrote for me was 24 years ago. Wow. It's a long time, you know, and there's two concertos, a piano trio, and six solo pieces, I think, in that time. Yeah. I mean, in um, those pieces, I mean, some a, of them won't, I mean, some of them probably wouldn't have happened if you were not really keen on, on get, I mean, trying to get them. No, I mean, now. yeah. And also, yeah. And also, but it goes both ways that he might not have bothered, I, I you know, I, I didn't, wouldn't have had the opportunity and he would not have bothered maybe writing a piano piece who might have written something for the solo um nose flute or something instead um uh but i i mean i think it's i feel there are other composers as well there are lots and lots of them who i feel where i feel when i open the score i feel both instant recognition and 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 comfort in a good way of like the feeling that i'm not i'm not confused but also com- the challenge of something completely new at the same time, you know, like there's this new piece of Rebecca Saunders that we, that we, um, that, uh, we worked on a bit through the sum, through the, the earlier month, earlier weeks of the summer, um, 
based on the piano part of the the piano concerto that she's just written. And um, that's a case where, you know, I know exactly what she means in a certain way immediately. But at the same time, it's a really is a new piece. And I don't know, you know, she'll she'll say, no, actually, Nick, I don't mean that. So uh, it's a it's a it's like it's like a friendship, you know. When I see you again, Ilan, you'll be you'll 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 be a slightly different person. You'll be still the same person I've known for a long time, but you'll also be have new experiences and and be a new person with new ideas and right. and a longer beard or shorter beard. Yeah, well, maybe without so, um, any. Yeah, indeed, um, and no hair at the top as well, baby. Um, yeah. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> You used the magic word canon earlier, and we were we 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 we've been sort of talking around choices of repertoire and programming. Um, uh, is improvisation a cheap way to expand the canon? Um, I think it's more for me. It's more about actually accepting into the canon stuff. I mean, everything that that is kind of basically could be played, you know. So then then it means that, you know, the borders are not so clear if the compo- how much the composer is actually given. We, we had this problem, of course, in the 60s when there was all this altercation about aleatory and all this, you know, this wasn't improvisation, by the way, but, but there was a kind of interest in kind of letting go of control to some degree. Um, and, and this letting go of control of the material um, is definitely something that's very common for composers now, and um, to, in many different ways. So I, I, fi- I do find that um, that that we kind of been ignoring tons of music, and some of it has been ignoring because of you know the musicians that are doing like orchestral. You know, like let's say Anthony Braxton, he has a piece for four orchestras. Okay, uh, he wrote this piece. It's not improvised in any ways, as much as I know. I think there are some improvisation elements to do with how the conductors relate to each other, but the music is all written out. But he is an improviser. So the composing world has been very insular to make sure that an improviser that's also composing is seen as a jazz musician. (laughs) You know, I know... So I, I know that from, from George Lewis, for example, um, how much it's still like when he comes to Paris or he comes somewhere else and he's still called a jazz musician. He hasn't been doing jazz for decades, you know. So there is an issue there. There is an issue that's also to do with race and not only to do with, with actual music, but, but it's to do with how we are guarding our canon. And this guarding of canon is where the danger is starting from. So the minute when your canon is slightly more fluid or maybe really fluid, uh, you can accept into it things uh, in a much deeper way. And you can also have musicians that are much more versatile and can play lots of different music. They'll be fine playing uh, Cages 4, let's say, where, where there's, all, there's very little explanation of what to play. You know, they're just basic small rules but it's very open and you need you you do need to be an at least to know a lot about improvisation to be able to play that piece in my opinion and uh, so so there's a lot of things like those pieces and i i feel like a lot of these pieces 
when you bring them even now to a new music ensemble, people have no idea what to do because it's not something that we teach when we go to normally. Uh, maybe now it's accepted, but in most kind of traditional music colleges, they don't teach how to play that. It's not discussed. It's something that you're kind of supposed to find out later, but that's, then it's going to be too late for most people. So my point is just like we are guarding the canon to such a degree that any breaking of the canon, uh, even if it was in the kind of avant-garde 60s, 70s, 80s moment, is still kind of considered like outside it. Um, who, who is guarding the canon? Well, that's a good point. It, it's hard to tell. It's kind of like, you know, how with capitalism and bourgeoisie, things are kind of happening without you noticing how the power structures work. So there's a, there is a power structure working with, you know, having a certain, certain composers being played and others not. There is, there are, there's politics there, uh, which we, I think it's, you know, we obviously, that's part of what we're talking about. You know, yeah, you I mean, I think touch it heads on, but no, I mean, I, I, I was thinking in the minutes before while I was making my tea, um, that and it occurred to me that actually the control of the canon is usually not really in our hands. I mean, you and I, we can say, I can say, I want to play Bucharestia for nothing else for the next three weeks, and you know, you can, you can say, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to improvise with my left hand and play Beethoven with my right hand, and no one can stop us, you know, um. But when it comes to commissions, for example, and programming and promoters, there are people, and uh, we, we love our promoters and our commissioners and our programmers, but there, are, there is also the, fact that the, the plain fact that they are, they are the ones, really, that hold the control of the canon. That's, yeah, a, I mean, that's, what, a, that's a devil's what, uh, advocate a bit. I, devil's advocate a bit. I mean, I don't know if that's no, true. I, I, I think it's, it's pretty obvious that it's like that. I mean, wh what was called in the conversation between Jennifer Walsh and George Lewis in the Darmstadt podcast before us, they called about the gate. I mean, it's called kind of like, is a general term, gatekeepers. So, I mean, we, we are, I mean, I would consider myself and you also part of that to some degree. So... I think I think we have. I mean, we both take a different view. I think of what our role is. Who we who do we try to actually let in because of some power that we have? It's a small one, but it's still a little bit. And um, I do, yeah, I I do mean, find it. Go on. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I was going to say the, about you and I being part of that. That's uh, of course that's absolutely true. There's this whole. It's like the turtles all the way down. Um, that there's you know there's promoters at the top and or, or or there's there's governments at the top giving money like the American government giving money to Darmstadt at the beginning, um, uh, mm. and there's 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 promoters and there's arts councils and and these kind of people and there's orchestras and there's concert promoters and there's musicians but someone at the age of 50 and someone at the age of 30 and 20 they will have different powers and different connections with these institutions and it's it's obviously true you know i know people people have said or i've heard people say things about me that make me sound like i'm purely an institutional person because i'm 50 rather than 30 you know and I see myself not like that at all because I see myself still as 30, um, you know, right. because I'm trying to contradict the things that are being told to me sometimes by institutions. Um, yeah. So it's like, it's like, it's like a lay, it's like a, a layer cake that everyone, everyone, as you go further down, you have different kinds of power or less, less power, but also less connection with the top. But that doesn't, it's not the same as saying that the, the, the people 
when they're youngest have least are least controlled by the gatekeepers that's also not true because when you're young you're controlled by your teachers essentially i mean in, in not directly but you are you are the you are the product of your of your upbringing as sure. a musician i mean and way. now there are there are of course all the issues about uh, women composers which is kind of in the last five years suddenly became suddenly it's actually being discussed properly um afro-american composers of course uh composers outside um the center so i would call it composers that are asian or or african or or from from south america let's say and other places and i mean i think all these issues are are definitely dealing with what we do with our canon how we proceed and i think i mean it's actually that's not only to do with new music of course so so that that is a big deal i think now and and i think i'm excited about it not because necessarily all the pieces that will be played are the best but i think it's good to have this moment where things are opening up there is a need for it and uh, we can see much more clearly into history um i mean in the last kind of few years i've been kind of digging into slightly more esoteric things not because they are esoteric because suddenly trying to understand what was the scene let's say in 1965 in in bucharest or you know what was being played in asia in different countries in in a certain time you know and mostly it's acknowledging that we we don't know we don't know this music and uh, there is so much there even in the last 50 years that we just we have to kind of do a lot of digging even even though a lot of it is already online uh, we have so much work to do to, to try to understand what music was actually being play, uh, written you know mm-hmm. and so I, I, why should i accept that uh, you know if i look at them I, i recently there was a beautiful program that svr did of like the last 70 years from um from Donna Eschingen, like what, what the SVR orchestra played there and came with, with one or two CDs and it was a whole list. Of, so I kind of went through it. And of course, I knew most of the composers, but there, was, there were some suddenly names that I didn't know. And I'm attracted to that because I think some of those are, can lead you into a whole world that we don't know about. So for example... My, like, one of my latest obsessions was this uh, composer called uh, Koryun uh, Aharonian. Uh, this was a piece that was performed in the early 90s um, in Donaeshigen, and I was kind of, who is that? And, uh, and now I've, I've played this piece last year in, in Rainy Music Days um, because Lydia Reeling is very open to, to kind of, yeah, expanding the repertoire of new music and actually digging in more. So like I think a couple of years ago she did um, Micheline Saint-Colombe Marcoux, which is a composer from France who nobody knows or very few people know. Can, sorry, not from France. Big mistake. From Canada, Canadian composer who is an amazing composer, who died, but she died young. And um, this is, you know, another one like, oh, so many composers who died kind of in the 70s and 80s, like Yanni Christou, but he's famous. But so there's like another... 20 that I know on top of my head that are really amazing, but they're just not being played because there's no one there to promote their music. You know, they would be now 60, 70, they might be played a lot if they were alive. So that's another angle. You know, so there's a lot of these kind of pockets of uh, 
of research that I feel we need to do in order to have a, a program that's that's rounded. Um, yeah, you're, we we're can, re, in a sense, not we, um, but the, the the canon is being rebalanced in a sense, isn't it, by that? Um, yeah. Both from the from the the gender point of view and the race point of view, and also finding finding repertoire which is which is lost, you know, or which has never been. There's repertoire which has never been present, but there's also a lot yeah. of repertoire which is lost. And I've 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 when you read old magazines like you know Musical Times or equivalents in other countries, you you often find writings texts about composers which make it sound like they are the next best mm -hmm. thing. To the next right. you know the next the next great composer and yet you've never heard of them or they seem now very minor figures and that always interests me that um uh that people can be perceived so differently 20 years later or 40 years later right. um i mean this is interesting in the in the context of this bill hopkins that that is a composer that you have really promoted and really kind of really when you did a cd of his piano music of course and then I conducted this piece, a world premiere of a piece that he wrote 45 years ago. Um, this was an amazing project. I mean, I'm still kind of like blown away by this piece, still need to, to do another performance. And I kind of like, this was such a great experience of kind of doing, he died young. We never would have known what would have happened to his music. So it, this is kind of an example of, of, of something like that that's kind of lost. Yeah. And uh, the archaeology that needs to be done is so huge because there are many, many people like that. You know, uh, it's not something that we, if we only do that, we'll be fully occupied for the next 20 years. Because <laughs> it, it, and all the living composers uh, who are writing wonderful music will get no performances. Yeah, exactly. Um, because they get performance. Don't worry about them. Like <laughs> all those other ones, you know. But I mean, yeah, yeah this is just to find a balance. But I, I think. Yeah, it's super exciting to to dig much more deep, deep, deep in there and not accept uh, the few names that are told to us that they are the ones that kind of did everything. Yeah. It, I mean, like the best example for me is minimalism. You know, that's an easy example. Like we are told basically that minimalism was four or three people. I won't name them because I, I don't necessarily like their music. But actually they were a part of like at least 40, 50 composers at the same time, you know, in the same place, more or less, that were doing that music. So that the power of that scene and that music is not to do with one composer. It's definitely mm -hmm. not about that. It's mm -hmm. to do with that whole scene and how it operated. And you mm -hmm. can read that in Tom Johnson's book about, you know, the Village Voice articles that he collected in, in a book you can see how huge that scene is and uh, and then at the end we are told it's three four composers no way that's yeah. not what it's about so um we're talking over time a lot um we've talking we're talking about things going back into the 50s and we've also talked about the passage of time in terms of our our own experiences as performers. What about the passage of time for composers? What happens to composers over a long period of time? I'm opening the door to a discussion about old composers. Yeah. Well, we mentioned Christian Wolf, and I know we are both interested in his music. I, I presented one time in, in Tectonics Festival pieces from him, but the first piece was like from the 50s. And the last piece was from like 2014. 
And it was just incredible, you know, to realize how long he's been composing, um, how much of a journey, but to some degree, how much kind of like single-mindedness is needed because, for example, he's such a composer that basically created his own world. And uh, even though he was influenced by other things, he was kind of just like just going in that road. That road was also related to a lot of politics, for example, and, and the, the passage of time, you know, how he was relating to the late 60s events, etc. Um, but also to do with, I guess, how he was concentrating on different aspects of his music. I mean, yeah. it's, super, it's I, super interesting. People have composed a long time. Yeah, I mean, I th- with Christian, I'm, I'm, I'm always amazed when you think, when you look at his, you go back to his work when he was 16 and was, was meeting with, with John Cage for lessons, um, those pieces with no, two or three notes in them. Um, and then you go back a little bit further, like a week or two earlier, and it's the moment when he gives John Cage the I Ching. Because he was, you know this, Elan, I'm sure, but our right. listeners maybe don't, that um, Christian Wolf paid for his composition lessons um, uh, under John Cage with books from his father's publishing house. And his father published the English translation of the I Ching. So when it came out, Christian gave it to John Cage and John Cage used it and, and the rest is history. But <laughs> going back even further than that, you know, he's born in Nice because he's actually European and he, was, he fled... He fled um, uh, fled the Nazis as a as a someone from a Jewish background, um, his his father did, but his uncle went to his uncle was at Brahms's funeral. Oh, I don't I know if you know that. that. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah, his <laughs> uncle, his uh, his father's uncle, so Christian's great uncle was uh, um, Guillaume Day of Hamburg. At the in, right. when 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 um, Brahms died and was a friend of Brahms, and so Brahms's uh, gra- uh, Christian Wolf's grandfather was there with with the great uncle. At Brahms's funeral, and this is the man who who says who talks also in 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 uh, in Cage Cage quotes him as just talking about how you can never separate two notes long enough for them not to become a melody, <laughs> and he has a family relationship to Brahms. I mean, it's just an extraordinary amount of time covered and an extraordinary um, arc of culture in a certain way. Yeah. Um, one thing that always interests me with 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 that kind of of question of time passing is what is the difference between this maybe should be our last last little paragraph what what should be the different what would be the difference between opening a christian wolf piece and not knowing anything about christian wolf and opening a christian wolf piece from from this year and knowing all of his works for the last 50 years what's the difference ooh <laughs> i guess as a performer we get a lot of our knowledge um from the knowledge of the whole or yeah the whole book of pieces like we i mean i think it's like learning beethoven right like if you're going to play one sonata you kind of need to know all of them and the same thing with the symphonies or string quartets so it's like even though those pieces are separate i think in our mind in order to understand the voice of the composers we need to know way more so I think, yeah, I think if you just open, and this is part of the problem with doing pieces by composers you don't know, that sometimes it's impossible to understand anything because the person has created the kind of, kind of language so that it's very closed. And uh, if you are just doing one piece, um, you won't understand anything. 
I have had this experience many times when I did, I, I came unprepared because I didn't do my research on the composer enough. I thought, well, I could just like wing it, you know, uh, look at this music. It's fine. It's, it's in four, four, you know, but it doesn't, it doesn't really work like that. And um, when you say research, what kind of research do you usually do? You just well, talk try about to, getting to know everything as much as you can. I tr- yeah, as much as possible to listen to other pieces or at least to look at other scores. Um, and of course, with composers that we have some documentation of, so reading books and reading stuff about as much as one can. Um, I mean, in that sense, um, it, it can be a really tricky thing. I mean, luckily, working with a living composer, they can guide you, you know, so if you take the wrong turn, like with the Frank Denier piece, the first time I did, I don't think I really understood anything. Um, but he was good enough to help me understand how it works, you know. Mm. And um, some composers on purpose don't guide you. They leave you kind of, you need to sort it out. It's your thing. And some people find a way to, to understand where you need some guidance. Um, and it can and be, if the com- and if the composer isn't there at all, then because they've, they've already died, then you ha- it's up to us for them to do our res- research and to get to know as much as we can of their work. Yeah. In order to try Huge to understand. research. I mean, the problem, of course, is that I have some composers that I work with, for example, Anna Maria Avram, who died, and Yanko Dumitrescu, who are kind of like, it's kind of impossible really to understand the music if you've never really worked with them. Mm. And I can, I can, and this is, this cannot be the only example. So I am sure that there is other composers that when we look at their music, we are actually missing out a lot by not, um, because I mean, some composers use notation in a very loose way, even today. Um, I like that. I mean, I, I think it's a challenge for us. It's sometimes more of a challenge than doing something where everything is super notated and controlled. Um, and I think, yeah, for me, it's a huge thing of trying, even when I do try, when, I mean, I, I guess it's the same for us when we do Beethoven. Um, I mean, now I've reached a stage when I can say, okay, well, yeah, there is basically a lot of choices. I wasn't in this place 15, 20 years ago. Where you I mean, you, tell, you, you realize that there is choice involved in playing Beethoven. Yeah, I, I think yeah. I was way more, no, it has to be that way, yeah. you know. And now I'm like, no, no, it's like I've got 25 choices here and nobody's going to tell me that one is better than the others. I have to make them and do it like proper, like that I know much more what it means, like to make the choice and really take the road with that. But but nobody's going to tell me, yeah, there's only one way. Yeah. Um, uh, you but, just mentioned about loose notation. and. Um, I think just as interesting or even more interesting to me is, is you know, Beethoven, there's no loose notation in Beethoven and yet the choices are still there and the, the yeah. space for misunderstanding is still there. I, re- I remember, I'll, I'll, I'll name the name, when I first played Chirino the very first time, the fifth sonata, I, play, I was a good boy and I played it all in time. I played it very, very precisely rhythmically and the speed of all the, re- all the relationship between all materials was absolutely right so that the, the the fast things and the slow things all at the right tempo, you know, everything in ordnung. And, um, and I played it, I, I, I sent him a tape and then I went to go and see him and, and he said, 
I'm very sorry. I'm very sorry, but it's not possible to notate what I really want. Right. So he had used a totally tight notation, but then he said, no, 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 no. This, this material needs to be slower. This material needs to be faster. And then which he didn't, the whole, notate. Which he didn't right. notate. And and this whole <laughs> thing is, is just completely blown apart. Um, and then you realize that right. there is, it's not really a freedom, um, but there's a, there's a, there's a process that you have to go through in understanding what the material needs, which actually goes against the notation. It's not, it's not really right. freedom because I'm not just saying, Oh, I think today I'm going to play that material fast or that yeah. material slow. It's, it's, it's a necessity. It has to come out of the music. I mean, in a way, the great thing with playing music sometimes is, I mean, if you know why you're doing something, like if you've got a, like a whole reasoning about how you're going to play it and it makes sense to you, that's, that's already half the thing because it, it, it can be completely wrong. Like, you know, some Bernstein performances of, of Mahler or other things, you know, it's completely wrong, but it doesn't make any <laughs> difference that it's wrong. You know, it's, it's so good. You know, it's so it, like you take some idea to the end, you know, and so it might be completely against the music to some degree, but on another level, it's so right. Like it, it's so, I mean, it, when the when musical mind of the performer is really in sync with the piece, it's really digging deep there. It might not see something that's there. It might need to focus on another thing. So I kind of, I'm, I'm much more kind of less annoyed about, I used to be really annoyed with people that do whatever they want all the time. You know, like what, what you, like, it's not about you. It's about the composer. Why are you all the time doing all these sticks? But now I'm kind of like, yeah, makes sense. I mean, I might not like it, but I kind of like, I have much more time for it and I'm learning much more this way. Um, so yeah, that's a funny one. Like I, I've kind of become much less orthodox, I would say, than I was, you know, also with music, I used to hate tons of music. It's quite hard for me to hate anything right now. It's quite a bad <laughs> disease of mine. Kind of like, I, I need to kind of like, there needs to be something really terrible for me not to like it. I kind of like really, I kind of like too many things right now, like musically. Okay. I think that's a wonderful, positive place to end. So thank you, <laughs> Ilan Volkov. And um, I've been yeah, Nicholas pleasure. Hodges and uh, we are very happy to have spoken. Um, we covered a lot of ground and probably very much too quickly. So we'll do another one next week, which will be 12 or 24 hours long. Okay. Thank you very much, everyone. Bye-bye.